Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations, everyone. My name is Matt Markin. And yes, 20 episodes in for Adventures in Advising. We're so excited for you to join us for each and every episode. And I don't think we thought we'd make it this far to episode 20, but we are already there. And as of this past Saturday, we also found out that our podcast has surpassed 5,000 downloads. So thank you so much for listening and being so supportive. We love you. Absolutely. We appreciate everyone who's been listening to the podcast, everyone who's appeared on the podcast, and everyone who has supported us along the way. And maybe just to give a, a quick shout out to some people, it was International Podcast Day during the, the week. Some some of you may have heard about that. And Colleen Doyle gave us a shout out, recommended us as one of her favorite podcasts. And I know Colleen is also starting a new job at the University of Maynooth pretty soon. So good luck there, Colleen. I also want to give a shout out to the team at Inside Track. They said uh, congrats on the 5,000 downloads. They've enjoyed our journey thus far, Matt. And they said, here's to the next 5,000, then 50,000, 500,000, 5 million and more. So <laughs> they're expecting big things. So uh, hopefully we can uh, live up to, to that. And um, also a uh, uh, shout out to continued support from uh, Michael Giroux, who said that um, we are one of the best podcasts out there. Wonderful hosts with some fantastic insight from top leaders in the field of higher ed and academic advising. So thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Michael. We'll send you that check in the mail soon. Uh, we do want to also give a shout out to Sarbert, who posted on Apple Podcasts and said, awesome podcast. Colm and Matt discuss global issues and how they directly affect higher education. And even if you're not in academic advising, but are a leader interested in the future of your workforce, this podcast can help shed light on what is happening in education. Highly recommended. Uh, well, thank you so much for that. And also thanks to Anna Trekova, who is a consulting professional in advising adult learning and education. Anna posted on LinkedIn regarding Sean Bridgen's interview about advisors helping students learn more by learning more themselves. So she really appreciated that interview and that sentiment from Sean. So Thank you so much for that, Anna. And yes, both Sean and Brian's interviews gave loads of tidbits um, in their interviews, and we hope you enjoyed that last episode. Yeah, and I think we have two wonderful interviews today, Matt, with they, they were a whole lot of fun to, to speak to the two advisors. Uh, they offer fantastic insights as well. There's plenty of takeaways uh, from both, and I think our listeners will really enjoy them. Who uh, who've we got up first? 
Yeah, so we'll jump right into those interviews. And first up, we have Gavin Farber, who is an academic advisor at the Fox School of Business and Management at Temple University. And after we had the episode about the advising communities a couple episodes ago, we spoke with Gavin about coming on to talk specifically about the advisor training and development advising community from Nakata. And I really enjoyed this interview. Gavin is fun to talk to and is definitely a wonderful person to connect with. So let's chat with Gavin. So our first guest is Gavin Farber, who is an academic advisor at Temple University's Fox School of Business and Management and has been in this role for nine years. Currently a member of the freshman sophomore advising team, Gavin assists these students acclimate to the university environment. He has developed workshops to engage students on academic planning, career development, study abroad, stress and time management, and student financial services. His other specialty areas include teaching seminar courses for undeclared and exploratory business students to assist in their major and career development. He served the Temple Advising Community as co-chair of the Academic Advisor Group, and Gavin also led the Temple University Advisor Mentoring Program, where he helped in the pairing of new professionals with an advisor mentor on campus, which that work turned into advisor training and development activities. His research interests focus on advisor training and development, advisor mentoring programming, and mid-level professionals in higher education. Gavin earned his Master of Arts in Higher Education from Rowan University in 2010 and Master of Science in Human Resource Management in 2016 from Temple University. He joined Nakata in 2012. His engagement in the association began in the Region 2 Mentoring Program in 2013 as a mentee and later served as a mentor in 2015 and 2016. He has presented at various Nakata conferences in the areas of mid-level advisors, advisor mentoring, and advisor training and development. Gavin was elected the Advisor Training and Development Advising Community Chair in 2018. His association roles also include serving as the Nakata Region 2 Mentoring and Membership Coordinator and member of the Nakata Professional Development Committee and Nakata Webinar Events Advisory Board. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making time in your hectic schedule. I think your accomplishments and the sheer number of things that you juggle came across when Matt was reading your bio there. So we're pleased to get the opportunity to have a chat to you. Now, I you have nine years of experience as an advisor, but I know you've told me before about a little bit about your uh, circuitous route into advising. Maybe you could share a little bit with listeners as as to how you came to work as an advisor. Sure. Um, well, as an undergraduate student, I was studying journalism and I really wasn't feeling journalism by the end of the sophomore year had a little uh, altercation with a professor who didn't think I had the talent to be a journalist. But coincidentally, that same term, I was training to be an orientation leader on our campus to work with the new freshman and transfer population. So in being trained in that and experiencing being an orientation leader for a couple years, um, it really kind of personified like, wow, I should just go get my master's in higher education and um, Joanne Damager was my one of my supervisors as an orientation leader at Rowan, and she later became president of Nakata. So she never told me about Nakata, but just sort of was like, oh, you could work in higher ed and do X, Y, Z. And somehow I was always the orientation leader assigned to the undeclared 
student center. So the student would come with their little, I have to register for these classes and I would handle the hyperventilating and the, I need, I need, I need two classes at night. And so that was sort of a four way into advising. And then when I got into graduate school, I didn't really think about advising. I was just so centered around like leadership development and, and Dean of students and high level professionals that I never really thought like, no, you need the, you need the fundamental blocks of figuring out the industry as a whole. So, you know, yeah, I was working centrally with like the Dean of students and like other directors, but I wasn't kind of told like, this is how you become an advisor. It sort of was like, I got out in a bad economy and it was an 18 month long, um, from graduation to my start date at Temple, it was a year and a half that I wasn't working. So, uh, it was extremely humbling and it teaches you a lot about, do I really want to be in an industry that takes me this long to find a job in where I could just go get a job as a waiter or go work at a coffee shop or do something. And I just was just somehow all the, all the jobs I was getting interviewed for in the last three months was all advising. Um, I found working as an intern at a community college local to me was a great way to re- revitalize my interest in higher education. And that definitely helped kind of refuel my soul a bit. Um, and somehow when I was getting to Temple, it was just, you know, the, all the thing, all the symbols were lining up. Like I'm a symbols person. I'm weird. Like I, I, all these things were happening at the same time. So you know, it, it was a journey. All right. And now what your bio didn't say was that, what was it a couple years ago? You won the distinguished young alumnus award from Rowan. I for that, did. Yeah. And so that award is uh, given to our to students who were at Rowan and graduated within the last uh, 10 years. And that's a very distinguished award. So uh, very well deserved. So congrats on that. And I think we kind of see that with, with that award or your in your bio, like you give back a lot and especially to the advising community. So not only within Nakata, but also at Temple. Um, I know we'll probably get into the Nakata stuff, but if we start with Temple University, I mean, you've served as co-chair of the academic advisor group. You've led the mentoring program at Temple. Can you talk about your time uh, leading those? Sure. Um, so the first week I, it was November 11th. I know it was, it was, no, it was middle of November of 2011. And the third day of work, I was told, go to an academic advising group meeting. Like, it was on my cheat sheet of things to do. Go to AAG. And I thought, okay. And I came to realize, like, oh, like, all the advisors at Temple would meet once a month. And there'd be, like, a guest speaker. And sort of one part mentoring and networking. Another part of just, like, getting together once a month. And I had come to learn that other institutions were doing this. And so... It was the first sort of idea of what professional development for advising was like. And, you know, after doing that work for about a year, I had noticed that some of my colleagues would go, some of them would not go. It was an optional thing, but I had said to my boss, like, I at least want to go at least the first year or two just to get my feet wet. And it was a great way to, like, just meet, like, someone from student affairs, someone who did finance, someone who worked in housing, um, faculty members. And so... Every year there was a pool that you could apply to become the, the co-chair. And so in 2012 or 2013, I put in to be the chair, but did not get it. So the other advisor that applied for it, like she got it. And then the other co-chair left the university. 
So by default, like I was sort of thrown in. So I did that for three years when it was meant to be a two-year term. Um, but I kind of believe in second chances in weird ways. So in that role, my colleague at the time, her name's Kisa Bon in our College of Liberal Arts at Temple. She and I just sort of looked at it and said, like, how can we improve this programming? So we thought, we got to think strategic. Like, we have to kind of get faculty and try to get student affairs people and get people in that are going to help advisors sort of think of their role as an advisor more 360 and not just in front of them. Um, for me, it was also a great way just to see colleagues because you won't, I will go months not talking to people because we're just in our little bubbles and we're very siloed at Temple because it's all run school and college and you know, there's a structure and just people just don't talk. And so that was sort of one of the coolest experiences of my career early on because the last day of my co-chairship, it was like my 30th birthday. So it was very like full circle. Like I closed out one decade, started the next decade and just jumped into other work. And so with the mentoring side though, Temple back in 2010 had created this new advising ladder and it was adding more and more positions. So I was part of a cohort that came in between like 2010 and 2011. There was at least 30 of us that came in and there was this need to mentor these new advisors because it's new talent. It's like a little baby and you have to figure out how do we keep them engaged? And so a woman by the name of Kathy Hens, Dr. Kathy Hens, created the program, went to our, you know, vice provost office and got the approval of the, you know, advising advising director's council. And I was part of the first cohort in 2012 and was paired with an amazing uh, colleague who's no longer at Temple, but her name is Jennifer Vandy Woodstein. Um, And she and I were together for two years and she helped me sort of understand the culture of Temple, how to think like an advisor. And so slowly I got onto the committee and then as people left the committee, I was told, you're kind of running it now. And I recently uh, passed the baton to another group of advisors because I can't do it forever. Um, And I'm learning in time to give up control and get new people involved, fresh blood. It helps, it helps the world go around in advising at least. Yeah. And I know we've, uh, we interviewed Dane Zanowski on a previous episode. And so he speaks very highly Mm -hmm. of you. So we know you you got a fan in him and, uh, he's, you know, said how much you've been a mentor to him. So he's amazing. Dane is such a good guy and he cracks me up. Like he's someone that doesn't need a mentor per se. Like he was new to Temple, but had all this years of experience and, He's a mentee, actually, a mentor in my, in the Region 2 program for us. And he's helping a new professional right now. So I think, uh, he's got a lot of ideas and, uh, I really adore him. Um, I wasn't mentoring for a while. I sort of had a, I got to a wall where I felt like I was failing as a mentor. So I stopped that and I just organized programs. And Dane was the first mentee I took on in like three or four years at Temple. Um, and he's surprised me beyond my wildest dreams. Um, so yeah, he's phenomenal. I admire how unassuming and understated you are, Gavin. You keep 
just say, you say, oh, I just found myself in this leadership position. And I think you wouldn't keep finding yourself in those positions if you didn't have the capability for it. And you're passing the baton on, as, as you said, which is great because it does bring more people in. And we do, we do need that. We need the, the next generation of advisors to, to come up and take those leadership positions. Now, um, we've delved into the the stuff you've done at at Temple, and there's more t- to that. But it might be interesting to hear how you initially got involved with Nakata, because just like Temple, you've worn a number of different hats with Nakata as well. So um, I told Joanne Damager I got this job at Temple, and she told me in the first couple of weeks, email my friend Jean Drake. She's a faculty member in administration, just email her, tell her you're new and she'll just meet her. And I met Jane uh, before the end of that calendar year. And I didn't know she was a former Nakata president, very busy with other committee work. And she sort of started telling me about Nakata and, you know, sort of got kind of was a little bird in my ear. And so that next January of 12, there was a New Jersey drive-in in in my hometown at a college in our town. So I told my bosses and they approved a bunch of us to go. Um, And that was my first exposure, a drive-in in in my hometown in Jersey. And it just sort of got us thinking like, all right, seminar classes, things like that. And the following year in 13, I had applied for the Region 2 mentoring program and at that point, our office wasn't really practicing a lot of professional development. You had to write formal proposals. I actually remember finding that proposal. It was like a two-page proposal of telling my bosses like why I wanted to go and what sessions I was going to go to because I was a late applicant, so all the registration information was up with the sessions. And um, being accepted into that mentoring program was like reason number two to go. So they let me go. And that first regional conference was like a baby egg hatching into a, a little little chickadee. And I, that was when I met Karen Archambault, who was co-chairing that conference. And I had met a bunch of other really great people from Drexel and across Philly and stuff. And, you know, that mentoring program had people like Melinda Anderson was a mentor that year. And Lisa Yaman, who's a good friend of mine at Virginia Commonwealth, she was a mentee. And they just sort of unbeknownst to me, sort of became that hashtag Nakata family without really knowing they were a part of your family. And between all those different folks I had met, you know, I didn't think about putting in a proposal and trying to present, but it was someone by the name of Catherine Chandler, who at the time was at GW working with Liz Sutton, who's now at Penn. They ran a pre-con of how do you write a, how do you write a proposal? I went to that and I, I tell Catherine Chandler all the time, you're the reason why I presented Nakata because she showed me how to write a good proposal and how to get the meat and potatoes into it. And then in 2014, started presenting at every regional. And I didn't go to an annual until 2017, just because it was hard to submit to annual. The dates were always mixed up to me and I just wasn't ready for it. I was so busy getting marinated into the regional system that you know, being a mentee in 13 and a mentor in 15 and 16. Um, it wasn't until I did this mentoring panel with Joanne where she said, you know, maybe we should submit this to annual. We could get a, a committee and a panel of different former Nakata presidents with their ELP mentees and it might work out. And 
we were accepted and we were in, you know, St. Louis in 17 and we did it in Phoenix in 18. We did it in 19 in um, Lowville and we were accepted to do the panel as a semi-live for the virtual. So again, being connected with the right people and the right encouragement to do it. I mean, again, international conference, never imagined that I would have a passport stamp from Nakata, but Dublin was my first time across the pond every time, first time ever in, you know, just going anywhere outside of the United States. And, you know, I tell people like Charlie, like your events help people make these connections. So it's, it's a journey perhaps like it's, you raise your hand once and you just sort of keep raising your hand because, you know, I don't like to say no to people. If I can, if I say no, I feel guilty. Or if I can't find someone to maybe that might be a better expert in an area, then I'm like, okay, I'm going to help you. So that's sort of the good feeling about Nakata is like, it doesn't feel like work. It's just extra stuff you do in your day. Oh, just don't burn yourself out though. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's always our worry. So we will go and talk about the advisor, um, advising community. But before we do that, since we're talking about conferences, um, so the annual conference is supposed to be in Puerto Rico, and now it's a virtual conference. And you are presenting uh, multiple things at the conference, right? Yeah. we. Um, I had two groups that were accepted. So we have a hot topic on where did all the mid-level professionals go? That is a on-demand session with um, Wyona Porath and Dana from Michigan, from Aquarius College. And what we did was we, just because it's hot topic, so we got creative. We're like, let's get a group of mid-levels to be a part of the live recording. So we did that last week for about 25-ish minutes. And then two weeks ago, Suzanne and myself with two other folks, Joanne Damager and Jessica Stanton, we recorded our mentoring panel, and it was really fun. We recorded it twice, but it's only about 18 minutes, so it truly is a TED Talk uh, with a live Q&A. So um, every year we try to do that session differently. So we, we, we're crossing boundaries with an Australian, an American expat in Australia presenting with us. So we truly are, you know, changing it up. And Gavin, I suppose thinking about preparing for this upcoming annual and because it is virtual and you have presented at previous annuals what's that experience been like of of preparing this year you know i think because i've had so much practice on zoom since february i felt a little bit easier going in because i literally tell people i was like the anti-virtual advisor seven months ago like was scared of WebEx, only liked Zoom when I was doing Nakata stuff, but then got excited when Temple got like a Zoom connection thing. So for me, it was just, okay, like where's everyone's comforts level? Like what's everyone feeling? Let's make sure we're not feeling burnt out. And, you know, with both groups that I'm working with, it's, it's you know, how do you take an hour presentation and shrink it into a TED Talk pretty much? And so... I'm learning from people like, don't put more than six words on a slide. Put a graphic up. You know your stats so well. Make it as easy for a person to look at as it is to read. It also helps that I'm working with Lee Cunningham right now with a team of folks for a webinar in November on the mid-level. So they've been sort of thinking and teaching us about how do you prepare 
for webinars and live web events and things like that. So, you know, Lee definitely is helping us train that way of how to train your mind for that. So a lot of positive factors went into that preparation, but I still get nervous, you know, like I just pretend like you're a supermodel, like get, get the outfit on and go, just go. You're live. It's cool. You're recording. That's fine. So, um, the analogies of life. <laughs> so how are things going right now at, at Temple with this virtual format? For me, I'm okay. Like, I worry about the students right now with sort of, they're, they're not getting as much engagement. So we're getting a lot of, how are we going to engage students? What are we going to do? How, how should we send out communication? And it's a big question to ask professionals. And I think it's hard for some advisors because some folks come from a student affairs background, some folks don't, so they don't have the developmental theory background and stuff. So for us, we're trying to do the best we can. I, I think it, this situation with COVID, it's had a lot more people collaborating that maybe never would have collaborated before. I think what's nice is like my freshman sophomore team, like we now meet regularly and we talk to one another and, you know, we have a, an amazing guy on our team who's like a whiz at figuring out Canvas and Zoom. And he's like the tech genius that we've always wanted to have on on staff. And he's kind of solved some major quandaries like in June when uh, Zoom decided to change everything in March with everything. And he figured out the problem in like 20 minutes and said to us, this is what you got to do. I think, though, as a, as an institution, we were kind of a little confused about, okay, we have 80% of our classes online, 20 in person. I was one of those advisors who had an online hybrid model of originally having to do seven classes, uh, four of them online, three in person. The worry of having to go on a train into Philadelphia, come back to Jersey, worry about what am I going to give my loved ones. And by the by the end of the first week, our, our numbers were over a hundred by the end of that weekend and our president went to a two-week online model and by thursday of the second week of classes we were moved completely online um so i'm thankful that i never had to leave the house but students are certainly confused and you know it's a different learning module and um we take it day by day and that's what i tell everyone like take life day by day you know i can't plan long-term fun like i can plan fun stuff like this like you guys have been on my calendar since the first day I've had drop. And that was the happiest part of my day. What was, oh, Matt and Colin, we're going to just chat for a little bit. Um, but, you know, like you have to wake up every day refreshed. And it's like, like the slate's clean as, as, as deep as I don't want to sound. But I've had to do that for myself to keep my psyche sane. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. And you mentioned the terms connections and collaborations. 
there. And I think all of your work involves that. It speaks to it, the work you've done at Temple, the work you've done um, with Nakata. And I think maybe that we should probably delve into some of the global collaborations that you've done. But those have come about through your um, work with the um, the ACD and the training and development advising community. Maybe um, you could fill listeners in a little bit about that before we delve into the next section. Oh, sure. So, um, so I'm currently the chair of advisor training and developments advising community. So Nakata has almost 40 advising communities. So when you become a member, you pick four of the advising communities to join. And when I came on in January of 19, um, we had just over 2,200 members. And at the annual conference in 19, we were at 2,500 of the 13,000 plus members. So that's a big chunk of the membership. So because it was so large, we had to figure out ways to how do we collaborate? How do we engage with the membership? So we sent out a survey through Google, through the EO, and we got over 150 responses. And from there, we figured out the ways of engagement and mentoring was sort of one area um, I was interested in. But with that welcome message I sent came a lovely email from uh, from a text pat, as she calls herself, from Suzanne Steely, who's at Latrobe University in Melbourne. And she's like, help. I need help. I have a new group of advisors. I need help with training and development. I was told I wanted to reach out because I know some other people. And so within that month, we talked and we've been friends for over a year now. And we've been doing this collaboration off. I always say it's part of training and development, but it's sort of a side project for us because it's just myself doing it. But um, we essentially created a mentoring program with five of her new advisors where we paired them with five mentors from Belgium, the Netherlands, Qatar, the UK, and an American-based advisor. And throughout this last nine to 10 months, we've been doing check-ins with them. We were able to do one or two live chats in Zoom, but because the time differences are all over the place, I was trying to do two different ones. So with Australia, I can normally meet with them later at night. With our European and Middle Eastern-based folks, we might be able to do earlier in the morning here and later in the day. So... It's my dream to be up at four in the morning so all of us could be on together, but that has not happened yet. Um, But they basically followed the same format that I use for Temple's mentoring program, the Region 2 program. The nuts and bolts are all there. It's just showing that mentoring has no border geographically across the board. And so I think Suzanne and I have basically shown the membership really like, throw another challenge at us. We can prove mentoring is an international process. Um, And it can be done well, and it can be done effectively. But yeah, it's definitely been an adventure. And it's been one of the greatest, I think, um, projects I've been able to work on. And I do it sort of as chair, but also as just a practitioner that just wants to help. Yeah, absolutely. And as chair of the advisor training and development advising community, you know, you've held various things in terms of events or you had the return from remote web event. Can you talk about how, how that event went and if there's any upcoming uh, conversations or events through your advising community? Absolutely. So the return from remote was this idea that our steering committee came up with back in May. 
we were just talking and because our steering committee is over 30 people, I usually have two steering committee meetings because nobody counted. And one of the meetings I had said, like, what should we do? And they mentioned, let's do a return from remote. And so a good friend named Terry Farr out of University of Illinois, Irvine Champaign, emailed me end of July and said, hey, have you talked to any advising administrators about their return to campus plans? And so brainchild came the return to campus. And so Terry and myself worked together and Charlie helped us out a little bit in helping to figure out seven administrators who on August 7th met with us live. We had almost 200 people on that call and it was phenomenal. And it really did start a conversation like we should do discussions with different advising communities. So for this semester in the fall, I should say we're talking with two-year colleges, advisor wellness. We're talking with global engagement. We'll do a second administrators one closer towards the end of the year. And we're starting just to collect names of different folks who we want to reach out to who have a unique perspective. What's nice about the advising communities is that some of them are smaller. So they have the ability to sort of get someone who necessarily doesn't have a title or a leadership position or someone who has a unique perspective to share it. And what training and development does is we're sort of the anchor of this series. But the great thing is that with Terry's help and because she's on council going to the board, we really have the support of all three divisions in this. And we want to make it as collaborative as possible with as much support and changing up who the facilitators are. Like, I'm not always going to be a facilitator. We might have the incoming, you know, professional development committee chair or a regional chair or someone that might have an interest in that maybe discussion. Um, I kind of compare these to the Hollywood Reporter, Hollywood Roundtables that they do on the Sundance channel. It's just the Nakata Roundtable just with a different title. And so we're all Lacey or whoever they have interviewing people. And it's just very relaxed. It's not meant to be too hard. The essential idea of the first one was checking in on administrators and making sure like, are you doing okay? We're worried about you. You have a lot on your plate. What are some challenges you've had? What rewards have you gotten? And really, because it was me thinking about my own administrators, like I check in with them all the time to make sure they're doing okay. Because, you know, they care about our well-being as advisors. as like new mid-level and novice advisors. But once you cross a line to administration, it's almost like we almost forget about them and their well-being sometimes. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic project. And I, it's great that it has grown and it's going to encompass more component parts. Now, Another example of your global collaboration is your work with UCAT. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing with UCAT in the UK. Oh, sure. So um, UCAT, if anyone doesn't know, is the United Kingdom Advising and Tutoring Association. These gentlemen have won a phenomenal technology award from them. Um, and I was approached back in June or July from their leadership, and they asked if I would help head up their new special interest group division. So it's sort of equivalent to a smaller version of the advising communities in Nakata. And so I accepted it just because, one, I had about almost two years in my role as training and development chair, and I learned a lot from my chairs and my regional reps. So why not share the wealth with UCAT? 
they already are partnered very heavily with Nakata and and their current special interest groups are like international students, graduate students, like, you know, how to work with students at like two year colleges, but like not what we would call them in the UK or Ireland, you know. So there would be kind of collaborations easily with different communities here in, here with Nakata. So I'm just providing support and guidance. So I've met with um, the chairs once uh, before the UCAT conference, just sort of easing their nerves. Some were a little nervous going in. And I just said, it's a conversation. You're helping to get interest into your groups, how you can get extra people to help out, creating events and such. And hopefully throughout the UCAT conference, I was kind of in and out because it was our second week of our semester. But from my, what I saw, like the groups were having a good time and hopefully, you know, David Gray's happy with the work we're doing. And I think it has room to grow quite boastfully because, you know, ACs kind of pop up in Nakata all the time based upon research or the, what's going on in the times. And so, you know, we're working with great people there. Um, you know, Anne Bingham is hilarious. I mean, she's who kind of created these special, these special groups and, kind of asked if I'd be interested in. So, of course, for Anne, I would do anything for Anne. Anyone in the South, Southern England, you know, she just showed me what her view of her home looked like. I was like, you are in paradise, but in England with the ocean. So why not? Like I said, why not? Like, might as well share the wealth, share the knowledge and help another association get to a level where they want to be at. Um, Because you cats a baby as opposed to where we're at with the Nakata. But again, in 20, 25 years, UCAT could be doing that for another grouping of nations or nation states that are doing the same thing with advising. So like I said, pass the baton, keep passing that baton. Yeah, And shout out to David and Anne. We love you both. And thank you for everything that you're doing for not only Nakata, but also within UCAT. Now, question on like with with you like you do a lot of different things right so you have your role at temple you do things with the advising community there you do with the advising community uh, within nakata now with ucat for those that advisors that are in this environment right now that might be struggling to find that balance what tips do you have for them with with wellness for me it's i take it day by day i really have to because I have my cuckoo days and my moments of like, I need to call a friend of mine that needs to calm me down a bit. But, you know, in perspective, we're safe. Like my mom's a frontline healthcare worker who's been out there, comes in with the whole 95 mask with the whole, and that was the reality check we got early on. Like, okay, I'm safe. I'm okay. I can take a deep breath in and move on. But then the perspective of what's really going on outside of our homes that helped me a lot, you know, like what would my mom want me to do? You know, what would so-and-so want me to do Um, for the work I'm doing? And so for people trying to get involved, it takes one email, one contact, one connection in order to get someone engaged. You know, for me, it was one email as an as like a brand new advisor at Temple to Jane Drake, who completely opened the Nakata engine up for me. One person did that for me, you know? One application as an orientation leader as an undergraduate student and a second year interview, because I didn't get it the first year, 
another story for another day. But that whole idea of like, it's one action that you're doing. For me, the work with the advising community started with just my attendance at the the St. Louis conference and meeting the then chair. And I wound up going to one of her pre-cons and she told me all about training and development. And I thought, okay. And I'd kind of known Rebecca Heaps a little bit because I'd written an article for AAT. And so I was starting to make the connection. And that first AC meeting blew the lid. Like, okay, I want to be on steering. So I put down for that. And it's little things here and there that you can do. I mean, the other thing I would say is if you don't want a steering committee position, if you just want to do something, look for free resources that we have on the Nakata website. Um, Every advising community has something going on. Everyone's got a different brew going on. We're lucky in the fact that as a training and development AC, we can kind of, we want to try and work with as many as we can to provide voices to people that may not have a voice. So, I mean, that's definitely been what we've been going through at least. But uh, this keeps me sane, honestly. Like if I didn't have all this going on besides my job, I would go crazy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. I will say that your the memes that that you post um, have been very funny, and that that's kept me sane too during the, the start of the semester. I forgot when I started that, but it was really to kind of make fun of the situations. Like we would hear, like when we were originally in our old offices, like we would hear the students coming in, and the peer advisors we have are phenomenal. Like peer to people that work with peer mentors, you are really the angels of this industry, like those student workers that you hire and you train to do pretty much 85 to 90% of an advisor's job. Those are the students who are getting the abuse at the front desk or through your virtual front desks. And, you know, I would hear the situations or a student would leave and they would say something. I thought that would make a really funny meme. And so I was just getting into technology and I thought maybe this will help the community out a little bit. And, you know, now people like them. And I was like, okay. So I kind of use them as part therapy, part funny, part like maybe this will help someone. If one person likes it, I'm happy. My mom at one point was like, are you going to get fired by the dean if he sees this? I'm like, the dean has a really strong sense of humor. Like he likes this. Um, But I think, I mean, and then I would put them on to Instagram because... I don't know how you can put him. I don't think you could put a meme on Instagram. At least I don't know. So I would just copy it and just put it on. So, but there's some funny ones you can find. I've been trying to find one of Paula Abdul where she's on the Hey Paula show where she, her line was, they try to beat me up, but I'm a warrior. And then her hairdresser sprays her hair with, with like hairspray. And you're like, did she just breathe that in that <laughs> the six episodes of that show that are now like, it's a Bravo vault where no one, it's like being Bobby Brown. We'll never see being Bobby Brown ever. Some lawyer has that show in it. You could maybe find it like on YouTube, 
very bad quality, but those two shows are in a vault somewhere under Do Not Show. Those were the two best shows of my college career. Those are the two best shows I ever saw. Gavin, what is amazing is that even when it comes to memes and sharing memes, there's giving back to the community is part of the reason you do that. And I think one of the other things that has shone true to me is persistence. You have a, a, a wonderful persistence. I think it's important that we talk uh, you know, about that because I think sometimes people see just success and they are, or, or a project doing really well and they think, oh, that just must have happened. And it, it's the the work and, and the failure sometimes that and, and, and it going back and trying it again with the learnings that you had. And I, I think that is important that people realize that, you know, it, it, it does take doing something maybe a second or a third time. Um, and one of the, the things I suppose you, you, you talked a little bit there around some of your favorite shows just outside of advising and all the work that you do and all the collaborations and, and trying to organize things across time zones uh, with people in Australia and Belgium and the UK and the various time zones in the US. What uh, what does Gavin Farber in, enjoy outside of uh, advising? I have two older brothers. My oldest brother lives in the same town as us. So I get to hang out with my niece and my nephew every once in a while so my eldest niece is 10 and she's someone who you know pre-covid would you know we take her shopping with my sister-in-law and you know my my nephew who's now seven my one of the boys are my brothers were smart they had they had they had they had children three weeks apart great uh the boys are just chill and um so I'm lucky with that. My grandmother lives in the same town as us too. She lives like two and a half minutes from us, but we haven't gotten to see her because of COVID. I actually saw her at my brother's house uh, for my nephew's birthday. And it was like four months. I, had, I hadn't seen her in like four months. But my sister-in-law, Sarah, showed her how to FaceTime. So 95 years old and she could FaceTime. So, I mean, I give her credit. And she has a Facebook profile and she's on every day. So it's definitely like hanging out with family, which is great. And there's times you got to just Netflix and chill or Hulu and chill or, you know, I, I watch all the housewives because that's all I can handle. Right? Like I can't handle a serious TV drama. I need something stupid that I could just fall asleep to. Um, at this point, I think we can all just create our own shows and just give it to Peacock or one of those networks and say, this is my life. Um, but yeah, so it's just little things here and there, you know, and then there's friends that call me all the time and we chat and, but, uh, eventually you do have to, I guess this is like a Gilmore girls line, but they used to say like Paris Geller would, you know, her, her, her robot status would shut down. You have to make sure you you don't shut down. So you have to recharge your batteries every night. So good old Gilmore girls. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's coming back. I, I caught a, a student of mine last two semesters ago, Paris Geller, and she got the joke, and she was like 19 at the time. And I thought, oh, they're getting it. They get my jokes. Like eight years ago, you could not say like a joke about Bethany Frankel. They would get the Kardashians, which I hate that in my vocabulary, but they didn't understand Bethany Frankel. 
Go figure. For Gilmore Girls, the one thing I always wondered for the longest time was why they spoke so fast. And then I found out that it was because the writers had so many words and they only had so much time. They had to like speed through it. They had dialect coaches actually to teach them how to talk so fast. Because on Mrs. Maisel, it's the same deal. Like they talk yeah. really fast because those writers, the the Sherman Palladinos, that duo are phenomenal. At whatever they write. And then you mentioned Housewives. So overall, favorite Housewives mm-hmm. show. I love New York. New York is definitely my favorite. Uh, I hate New Jersey. It is not a fair representation of our state. But yeah, New York. I love Dorinda Medley. Love Bethany Frankel. Leah McSweeney is by far the best new housewife I've ever seen. And yeah, like, and I woe on tirades about my hatred of Ramona Singer, but I like Countess Luann a little bit, but Sonia Morgan, I just have a little piece of my heart there with her. And I want to know what happened to Jules Weinstein. She had one season, got a divorce and, you know, got accused of abusing the husband. So go figure. Where does uh, Atlanta rank? I haven't watched Atlanta in a really long time, but I do like the women on that show. Like when What's Her Face with the Gone the with the Wind Fabulous came on, I was just sort of I'm done. But I like <laughs> the fact that um the chick that was on Top Model is on now. Um can't think of her name. Eva, Eva Marcel. Uh, She's on that show now. So um but I like Candy Burroughs. I think Candy's great. Nini's gone. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, she uh announced she is not coming back. And Garcelle on Beverly Hills is begging Nini to come to Beverly Hills, which I'm sure Kyle Richards is like, no, no, I don't <laughs> want Nini on this cast. Uh, I do watch Beverly Hills, but I do watch it just out of, like, I need something to watch. But I make fun of Beverly Hills more because, like, Dorit is like, your name is Dorit. Like, Dorit was a character in the Sex and the City prequel it was the name of carrie's sister your name is dorit it's not dorit you're from canada with like 16 accents rolled into one she sounds like uma thurman with like fake europea like i i can talk like this because i lived in italy and japan (laughs) get out of here like with your fake accent like figure it out and that's like that's like madonna with her british accent that can never happen to any of us Gavin, I knew when we organized this that it would be wonderfully good fun, it'd be entertaining, and it would be educational and insightful because you are all of those things rolled into one. I want to thank you for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt. It has been really, really great to have the opportunity to talk to you, hear about the work that you're doing here about the motivation behind it. And it sounds like, you know, the foundation blocks are in place for it to grow even further. So the very best for the upcoming conference by the time this episode is released. I think it'll be out actually on day one of Nakata's virtual annual. So I hope it all goes really well for you. And thanks once again. Oh, my pleasure, guys. And any mention on TV shows is just our opinion, so don't hate us for that. And any Madonna fans, I still like her music. Just want to put that out there. (music) 
Matt, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that Gavin is a fun person to chat to. And uh, he has a, a fantastic way of, of bringing ideas together and, and bringing people together. And I think that shone through in the interview there. And listeners will have heard Gavin refer to our next interview guest, who is Suzanne Seely. And Suzanne and Gavin have been working together. And Suzanne uh, has been a friend of the podcast, and we've been talking to her for a little while. She has contributed in um, some of our uh, kind of clips and stuff before, but it was great to have the opportunity to talk to her about the work that she has undertaken in Australia, some of the differences in the educational system there, and some of the developmental work that is that is going on. I really enjoyed this. And Suzanne is another person who really endeavors to make those connections both at a local level and a global level. So let's hear that interview with Suzanne now. All right, our next guest is Suzanne Seeley, who is currently the Senior Manager of Advising and Retention at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Suzanne is originally from Texas. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Texas Lutheran University and a Master of Science in Educational Administration from Texas A&M University. Suzanne started her career in admissions and then later to scholarships and financial aid, where she implemented a very successful retention program for first-generation low-income students at Texas A&M University. It was through that work Suzanne became a member of NACADA and began connecting with academic advisors around the university to support students. Suzanne eventually went on to lead the Texas A&M scholarship team and was privileged to work with some of the best professionals in the business. Suzanne enthusiastically taught first-year seminars and led international immersion experiences overseas. In 2014, Suzanne relocated with her family to Australia. She served as a national coordinator for Education USA in Australia through the U.S. State Department before eventually moving to La Trobe University in 2016. In 2019, Suzanne was charged with implementing a new model of advising at La Trobe and has since implemented academic advising as a pilot. This November, the university will expand their advising team from two academic advisors in the original pilot to a full complement of 12 academic advisors. Suzanne is excited and relishes the opportunity to bring new advisors into the global community and introduce them to the profession of advising. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. That was a, a long bio, and I won't lie, one of my staff members actually helped me write it. So uh, that's fantastic to hear as well. Well, it's a nice bio. I really enjoyed that Thank bio. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you have some very impressive accomplishments on your bio. And it's interesting because I suppose it outlines your journey into advising. But thinking back and for listeners, how did you initially get involved in, you worked in, in admissions, but how did you come to work in higher ed? Higher ed? Well, I think like so many of us, we go to school and we get inspired by someone at the university. Um, and I had that myself. So when I graduated, I don't think I knew that I was going to be going into higher education in particular, but I thought admissions is a good natural step right out of university. I loved the university and I wanted to go and market it and talk about my great experience. 
I applied for the job and got it and worked with my mentors at the, at the institution. Um, and from there, I, I, I was working in admissions. I went to Texas A&M and worked in admissions there and I met an individual and I find that it's the tale of two advisors, kind of two different paths. Um, and that individual, actually, many of you will probably know, it's Rebecca Hapes at Texas A&M. Uh, Rebecca and I started in admissions together. We were working there and she went in the direction of academic advising and I went in the direction of scholarship advising. But we always maintain that connection um, and that partnership. And, and it will come into the story later. Rebecca is actually an integral part of the, the implementation here believe it or not. Um, so that's how I got into advising. A little bit of a different route um, than others. I was never an academic advisor, which I uh, was explaining to you guys earlier that, you know, I, I don't have, I think, the mind to be an academic advisor. And I always knew that. Um, but I loved the concept of helping people and really paying it forward. And that's what it all came down to. That's why I got into it. Uh, I had people helping me and I wanted to pay it forward along the way. Nice. And shout out to Rebecca as well. Yeah, shout out. And now you're at you're in Australia, so you're at Latrobe University. And for those of us that uh, may not know that much about Latrobe, can you give us like a rundown of what Latrobe University is all about? Yeah, so it's still relatively a young institution um, in in the you know in our minds. It was it's fifty two years old, I think this year. Um, and it's got about 38,000 students, so uh, it's you know, a broad range of subjects, courses, majors is, is what you would call them, of course, um, there in the States. And um, they, they have not had traditionally advising in the same capacity that you would know either um, in America or even in the UK. Um, they've always had faculty or academic staff advising. Um, but there was a gap, I think, in the elements and the services in the sense that there was no there was there was kind of a gap in the middle between the administrative and central services and the academics and the faculty members. So um, there was a lot of bouncing around for the students. And that's what we found when we were doing a bit of an assessment, a gap analysis of what was happening at the institution. Latrobe, though, itself is set on a very beautiful campus. And just as you would imagine, you hear my good good American accent. There's a few Americans around. Um, I don't, I, I sometimes, uh, when I start to speak, people are shocked because I don't have a good Australian accent. Um, but it is based in Melbourne, Australia, but we've got several regional campuses as well throughout the state of Victoria. Um, and of course, an online presence. And there are, uh, there's a wildlife sanctuary on campus. So it's not unusual to be walking across campus and see a wallaby or a kangaroo, which makes my dreams come true. Um, and because it's set just kind of outside the city, uh, it's also not unusual to hear the kookaburras laughing. So it's got that it, that similarity to what I had at Texas A&M um, in that it's set in more of a rural setting, but it's still in the city. So it's, it's in the suburbs. Um, we do have a city campus as well. But um, yeah, I love it. It's known for being friendly. And I think that's what really attracted me to working there. Um, you know, it's kind of no no one's a stranger and there's a lot of good work being done on the ground because of those relationships between people. Yeah, the setting sounds idyllic. I mean, a wildlife sanctuary on campus. Uh, I'm I'm jealous. Uh, you, you, you talked a little bit, I suppose, there about the, the differences in terms of advising. Are there any other similarities or differences that you see between 
the U.S. higher ed system that you worked in and the Australian system? Certainly. And that is, I think, where where I am now and where I've been. So I've been here now for six years. And um, when I left, I, I think it's really important to tell the story of, of the development of what happened with me at Texas A&M. When Rebecca and I went our separate ways, uh, she went over to entomology um, to become an academic advisor, and I moved into scholarships. And I started a program, um, which was mentioned in my bio, the Regent Scholars Program, which was for low income, um, so low SES, first in the family students. And I had in my very first class, 682 students uh, come into the into the, the scholarship program. So over the years, it served thousands and thousands of students. And what I found through that is that, um, of course, and I've said it several times, there was no way I could know all of the answers for these students. It was all about knowing the right people. And Rebecca was one of the right people. The other name drop I'll give there is Sam Murdoch, who was one of the right people at Texas A&M for me. And we, because of our connections and because of our relationships, we were able to support the students better. If there was a scholarship question, loans, grants, work study, I was the person that we would connect with. If I had a question about academic advising, I would start normally with one of them and then we would connect up. I always think of uh, 101 Dalmatians with the dogs howling and activating that network. And that's really what we did at Texas A&M. And I took that and that learning. And when I came here, I could see that on the ground, as I mentioned at Latrobe, there were a lot of people good at doing a lot of good work, but there was a disconnect between some of the systems there were individuals with several different CRMs, so several different customer relationship management databases, several ways of keeping case notes, several ways of uh, booking in with staff. So there was a disconnect in the systems. The people were talking, but because there was a disconnect in the systems, the students were bouncing around from place to place and couldn't really understand. Well, I was told this by one person. I don't really understand it. Now I'm in your office. What does that mean? And the network, well, it was there, but it really depended on who and if you knew who to call. And that was a similarity. So relationships, of course, are the key to the success uh, with the underlying systems being put into place. But I think that that's one of the similarities. Is, and what I learned quite quickly is, one, that it doesn't, that, again, there's, there's no way that you can know all those answers. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It takes a village, it takes an entire team to surround the students with that support. And I think that um, the way I learned that process at Texas A&M, I was able to bring that with me to Latrobe and we've developed that further. We formalized it as what we're doing now um, and putting it into place. The, the other um, similarity is, and I, I've been told, well, one, that academic advisors in the context of what my mind was thinking. So you have to remember that I was thinking Rebecca Hapes and Sam Murdoch. That's what I had in my mind as the ideal academic advisors, that those people may not exist here in Australia because we didn't have professional advisors in that manner. There are advisors in, in Australia, so don't get me wrong, and um, there are developmental advisors, but there's really no university that's connected the administrative function with the developmental advising function. And when I was told that, I was a bit shocked because I thought, no, I think there's people like that everywhere. It's not necessarily uh, where you are or what you experienced. It's who you are and the personality traits that you bring to the table. And once we started proposing advising and the, the new model that we wanted here, 
the people started coming out of the woodwork. Um, and I have um, staff now that I look at them and think, you, you are my Rebecca's, you are my Sam's. Um, and so they do exist everywhere. Uh, it, it's not one personality that makes an academic advisor, right? It's, it's uh, all of the strengths that we bring to the table. And again, that comes back to those relationships. We don't have to be everything to the student, but we're a part of that puzzle. So I think that's some of the similarities. I think the big differences are that traditionally, at least at Latrobe, it's been very separate. So the academic staff have really stuck to, of course, teaching um, and working with the students, but they're very overloaded with a lot of work that they are having to do. And that I think is a global, a global issue where faculty members and academics may struggle with the workload. Um, and advising on top of that, you know, if they really enjoy it, then that's fantastic. But on top of everything else that they have to do, it makes it very difficult. And what we didn't have were the professional advisors. And uh, that's that's where we are now. Um, and, and they do exist. I will tell you that they exist in Australia. Uh, we're really, really proud of what we're doing down here. And um, I, I hope that um, this is just the start of something big. It, it's it's a it's an opportunity though for us. We've looked at the U.S. institutions, we've looked at the U.K. institutions, and we can learn from the wins, and we can move on from any mistakes that maybe have been picked up. But we're also doing some pretty cool things that will put us on the map. And actually, I think other institutions will be looking at us, asking us, well, "What are you doing?" Yeah, it sounds exciting, and it seems almost like there's. A lot of support once the idea was brought up, how you were saying everyone just started coming out, you know, and, and and now when you originally started the pilot, it was two academic advisors. And now you're actually moving towards 12, which is a huge jump. Um, how is that process going? <laughs> well, again, I have to I have to mention what happened in 2018 when this was all happening. Right. So I believe in serendipity and things happening for a reason. And in, um, I think it was September of 2018, I, I had come into the institution to learn. So I had to learn about the context of um, the Australian universities. And as I came in, I was learning the lingo of the institutions. So the word timetable for me was not something that I was familiar with. Scheduling, yes. Um, but timetable, I thought, what is this timetable? And I was uh, put over a timetable project. So I took over the timetabling team, which was very different for me coming from scholarship advising um, and running a scholarship team to timetabling. I learned about special considerations. I learned about uh, the centralized exams and how they run here in Australia. So just spending years and years trying to just learn the Australian context. And in September of 2018, I was in a role um, where I was advising, it was, it was the manager of strategic initiatives, and I was advising on strategy improvements. And I was in a room with some consultants from a firm that were representing robotic process automation. And I promise this has to do with advising. I always say I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but I was actually in the right place at the right time because I was put onto the project for RPA to work in partnership with that firm to look at what processes we could automate. And I mentioned earlier that our, a lot of our systems were disconnected. So we were spending a lot of time on manual processes and uh, working off of Excel spreadsheets and just things that I couldn't believe, uh, you know, the manipulation of spreadsheets down to the T. So I worked on a, a, a discovery project with this consultant and we proposed several 
potential projects for RPA. And in November, we pitched the idea and we got five bots to work on two projects. Those two projects would free up the people to actually become advisors. So that's why that is important. At the same time that that was happening, we had a new a new position at the university, the Pro Vice Chancellor of Student Success. She is a rock star in Australia when it comes to success and retention. Um, and she approached my then boss and said, you know, let's talk advising. What can we do? There's a gap here. Um, and we're hearing it from the academics that they're they, they can't keep up with keeping, you know, helping the students. We, we're hearing that the systems aren't connected. What can we do to improve this for the students? So when I say serendipity, it all really did line up. RPA was starting. Uh, we were working on those projects. And uh, the, the pro vice chancellor, whose name is Jessica Vanderlilly, kept asking me about academic advising and what I knew about it from the states. Now, I had been involved with NACADA. Um, since 2009, I'd been attending the conferences um, and just trying to learn as much as I can and make as many, uh, build my network and build my relationships. And they were just, just was asking me questions about advisors. And, um, and I said, you know, I can tell you all the ins and outs. I know how to start the programs. I know how to build it. I know how to run, admin, you know, administer it. But do you want to talk to two real life academic advisors? This happened in the same month. It was actually the week of Thanksgiving in November of 2018. And she said, yep, let's talk. So I set up an early morning meeting with two advisors at Texas A&M, the same two I've already mentioned. And um, when she met them, it became very clear. We have these people. We have these people here. So those two ideas together came came along. We started RPA. We actually implemented five little bots for us in early 2019 at the same time that we uh, were putting together the position descriptions for two new academic advisors. And we advertised those in February, hired them in March. They started in April. I put together a five or six week induction program. Um, so I went back to my Nakata roots went back and started connecting with all of those people that I had met at conferences, reaching out to everyone I could um, because I felt a little bit of pressure that a lot of this was riding on what I was saying. And, and yet I hadn't been an academic advisor. So I thought, you know, maybe you're, you're depending on me and I know my stuff, but wouldn't it be so much better if we started connecting all of these dots up? Um, and so we, we brought in the two. I did a five week, five, six week hardcore induction, uh, ran, ran them through everything you could possibly imagine. Um, at the same time, while we were looking at systems, you know, what do we want to use for case notes? What do we want to use for um, our CRM, our booking system? We actually started aligning our systems with other pieces of the university, which was really a big piece. We were building the relationships. So the, the Nakata core competencies, I built, I built it all off of those three. So uh, the conceptual piece, I trained them up in theory. Um, of course, I had student identity development theory. I had people come in and talk about transition theory. Um, the relational piece, I got them in front of everybody and anybody I could. Um, and I also started introducing them to folks in Nakata. And that that's important. That's a very important piece of this. Um, and the informational piece, um, which, of course, was all of that um, administrative knowledge that they needed, as well as all of the knowledge that was sitting in the, the, the minds of the academics or faculty members. 
So I put them through the ringer and we launched them in July of 2019 with our very first cohort, uh, the Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science, which is different in Australia than it is in other parts of the world, of course. So Colin, it may be like this um, in Ireland, but the Bachelor of Arts um, and Bachelor of Science are just one of many programs, of course. Um, so I uh, had about 400, 500 students in their cohorts. And within a few months, I was told I could hire two more. So I thought, well, we must be doing something right. And the way that started, so of course, originally the academics were like, I don't know, I don't know, you know, same, uh, I think it was your very first podcast, there was a faculty member talking about um, what it's like to, what it's like from an academic perspective or from the, the faculty member's perspective to onboard new professional advisors. The exact same culture change had to happen here. And at first it was, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's going to work. You know, how, how is this, you know, they, will they know the details of the, the subjects? How will they work with me? What can they do? Can they run reports? Oh, wait a minute. They can run reports. Oh, they can. They, they go into the data. They're proactive in this. And that caught their, that caught their attention. So they were, the advisors were trained to proactively look at um, risk indicators and how students were doing and proactively reach out. And then the next thing I heard was, when can we get one? And slowly I started hearing that more and more and more. When can we have one of those? Um, can, can I have my own? Um, and, and at the same time, the RPA was taking, you know, was launching. So the bots were fully functioning. People's time, you know, there's always um, plenty of work to be done, but those manual processes were slowly becoming better for us. We were slowly saving money on those manual processes. And here we are. So we are now in the middle of COVID. We left campus and we left campus in March and we haven't been back on campus since then. Um, so that was our semester one. We were we have we're about two weeks into our semester. And uh, again, the advisors kicked into gear. So we ran an outbound call campaign to our entire student cohort. Uh, we onboarded about 200 volunteers from around the university who wanted to come in and just call students just to say, how are you going? Uh, we, we spoke with uh, close to 18,000 of the students on the phone. And again, because of that, this, the staff were starting to engage more and more with the advisors. So at that point in time, I had four academic advisors. And uh, I think it just got, I don't know, it's like, you know, COVID has done a lot, but it's definitely sped us up in this, in this regard. Between that and RPA, you had the right people in the right place. Um, you have, you know, um, all of us connecting the right leadership. And now we are actually last night, our applications closed um, for our internal candidates and we will be recruiting and hiring a new team, which will come on board in November and be ready to go for semester one, 2021. Um, so it's, it, it's interesting to me because all of those things had to line up. And when I got to Australia, there were glimpses of, uh, we had an advising program um, at La Trobe that had success, but I, I truly believe that everything has to line up in a way for us to get to where we are now. That was the leadership, the technologies lining up, COVID, whether it helped us or not, I think it did. Um, and, um, you know, again, the connections, the relationships. It's a long answer. <laughs> it's a great answer and a fascinating one. And I think, 
you you mentioned serendipity earlier on in your answer and, and and it certainly sounds that way combined with a whole host of hard work that you and others put in but it, i was riveted actually listening to the project and the hearing the fruits of the project come through i think you know may, maybe while we allow listeners to digest about the project one of the things i suppose i'm interested in is knowing about the obstacles that students face, the barriers that that students face. And in terms of that side of things, do you see differences in the the difficulties students have in Australia as opposed to America? As opposed to America. So coming from Texas A&M, where it's a very well-established institution, advising had been around for a long time. The systems were very well-established. So that is my comparison. So I have to first say that. So it's, it, again, this is why when they asked me to implement academic advising here, I thought I have one perspective and that is of Texas A&M University. Let's connect with people globally. Um, the, the issues that I see here for students aren't that different though. Um, you know, there's still, what do I enroll in? How do I know what I wanna be when I grow up? What happens if I wanna change that idea? Um, you know, and again, the, the, the primary school and secondary school education leans into that a little bit because of the way we run our year 11 and year 12s, where uh, we are, are kind of already aiming towards a particular area of study. But the concerns aren't that different. You know, in developmental wise, it's the same. You know, if it's a mature age student, they have the exact same concerns around the world. You know, how am I going to balance life? How can I work and study and now homeschool my children? Um, and if they're a, what we call a school leaver in Australia, so if they're coming out of year 12, it's what do I want to study? You know, do I do I really want to go in that path? Oh, I didn't even know that that was an option. You know, my eyes are now being open to other options of things that I can study. Um, and how does it all connect in with industry? So how am I going to get to where I want to be? Do I even know what my purpose is? You know, and that's that's not different now. On the, the heart of it, though, the systems, so at Latrobe in particular, our students struggle with our systems, our, our enrollment systems. Um, even, you know, me trying to explain how it works is, is quite difficult. So if I've been in an institution for 20 years or worked in higher ed for 20 years and I can't explain it, I don't know how I can expect a student to explain it. And, you know, it's the same with, with students that, you um, maybe returning to study uh, or working with veterans coming out of the military. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's the same when you look at the theories and the research of identity development, that is the, that's quite similar, but system wise, we really struggle um, in Australia with a disconnect. Um, as I mentioned, we have several CRMs. We have several um, different application mechanisms where the data is coming from all sorts of different systems. So it's, it's hard for us to know, at any particular time where a student is in the system. Um, and, you know, I think a good example of one of those, one of those things that's hard to explain is academic progressions. So um, I've been working with unsatisfactory academic progress for forever, it seems. And when I got to Australia, I started looking at what Latrobe uh, does in that space. And it's, I, I found that the staff had a hard time explaining it to, to students. And again, 
if we can't explain it to students, then how can a student possibly understand it? So in that way, you know, the systems themselves and not just the system, the, the, the technology systems, but the systems themselves, they're hard to understand just as it is in America, just as it would be in the UK. And our job is to help teach the students how to manage the systems, both uh, the, the systems where they're enrolling, but also the systems of the university. Um, so that's that's that that in a way is saying globally, we, I think we are all on the same page. I think that we are teachers at the end of the day. Um, and that's what students need is is the teacher to teach them not to do it, but to teach them so that in the future they can do it on their own. So, Colm, I don't know if that answers that question, but it is there are so many similarities. But again, at the heart of it, I think one thing that I have said is everybody wants to feel wanted right? No matter where you are in the world. And one thing that I've in speaking with Australian students, of course, they do see the media and the movies and they see how we do things even in the U.S., um, you know, recruit me like an athlete um, and those sorts of things. So I think at the heart of it, we just want to feel that we're part of a community. We're valued. Our opinions matter um, and that there's people there to help us um, and to teach us. Because ultimately, once I get in, you know, if I'm if I'm going through the university and I've worked with someone and I get out into the workforce, then that that teaching, that opportunity to learn, that opportunity to, to, to build some resilience will help me in when I'm working. Um, so in that way, we're all the same. You know, I always say for us, we're all speaking English, um, but I have to still do a lot of translating in my head. And uh, I think it's the same thing. We're all we're all at the heart trying to work towards the same goal. Yeah, and I think, you know, with you talking about building resilience or teaching students new ways or just in this time of COVID, how as universities, as institutions, we've had to be very creative in what we've done and to push things through and in a word, clever. And I think that kind of relates to Latrobe's, I guess, vision statement. All kinds, all kinds of clever. Yes, or all kinds of, you know, and and when I saw that, I was like, I know that, you know, that is like a few years old, but I was like, how relevant is that statement, right? You know, it's like with that statement, like Latrobe was saying, you know, I think they put like the future is uncertain and uncertainty means possibility. And not just preparing students, that's preparing staff, faculty. And I thought it was a very unique statement and something that is relevant even now. Yeah, it is. And and again, it ties back to, you know, we have our four cultural qualities as well, which I know all institutions have care, accountability, innovative and account uh, accountability. Here I'm connected. Um, and those so connected. That's exactly all four of those tie into everything that we're doing on any given day. And again, you can be, you know, I could probably write the, my, my own motto. You can be all kinds of clever because you don't have to know all the right answers. You just have to know the right people. And that's really what we have done at Latrobe with advising. Um, I mentioned the pressure that I had in being, you know, having all the questions and, uh, you know, what should we do and how should we do this? And I, and I remember the new, ad, the new advisors themselves saying, what is normal? What should my workday look like? And um, I, I just kept I just kept saying this looks exactly as it should. You know, the busyness that you're experiencing, that's normal. Globally, that's what the advisors are experiencing. Let's let's find a way for you to find out how normal that is. And don't 
just depend on me for all of the answers. So kind of touching on the mentoring program that we've established, which is really exciting. Um, we, I think, so Gavin Farber sent out an advisor and training, uh, advising community survey in 2019. And I will say, he probably sent it out at the end of the day in America, and I was first on and I submitted it. So I think I won a prize, but um, it's only because it was morning in Australia. And I submitted it because I was so wanting to have that connection with Nakata because I didn't want to be the only one trying to share this information with these, you know, I didn't want to be all, I, I want to be all kinds of clever, but in multiple ways and through the people that I know, not because it's all in my brain. And I reached out to Gavin um, after I did that survey and said, Hey, I need some help down here. I need I, I, you know, I envision some way that these advisors can connect with individuals globally to know what normal is and to know exactly what column, what you just asked me, that when a student comes in and says, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know where I am in life. I don't know what my purpose is, that if they connect with you, Colin, you say, you know what? I had that same conversation today with someone, um, you know, or if it's if it's Gavin, you know, and he says, oh, yeah, exact same, you know. Students are concerned about going back on campus and what that's going to look like studying, uh, you know, online or being face to face in a COVID world. That's all normal. And so and kind of looking, how can we bring that in? You have to remember. So our webinars, you know, when Nakata runs a webinar, it's normally the middle of the night. So I'm going to the Nakata conference in a few weeks and I my my calendar is from 2 a.m., 3 a.m. start times um, so that I can be attending that. And, um, you know, I'm used to that, but I can't have advisors working all night um, to have professional development and then being available to advise students all day. So I've been trying to figure out how can I give them some professional development? And so Gavin and I met together and pitched this idea of an international mentoring program. And we piloted phase one of that with our, our very first mentors and mentees. And we are going to be piloting the second phase once we get this new team on board. And it's been instrumental because, um, you know, I, I know people uh, we actually have a, a Gavin's actually having coffee with the advisors next week. Um, just well, I say coffee. It's morning in Australia. So coffee with us. Who knows what he'll be having in the evening? But um, just a, a good way to connect in. And again, it's that normal. Um, you know, I said to them one time. It's the start of the semester and they couldn't understand why they were running like crazy, why there were students lined up to see them and why we couldn't explain to the university that it's not just about the appointments, but about the case management side of it. Right. So it's not just about one meeting with Matt. It's about the 18 emails, the 10 phone calls, the four appointments, the follow ups and how that forms that entire case. And how do we explain that to the broader university? How do we use data and what creative ways can we use data to drive our interventions? So as they started engaging with these mentors around the world, one thing that started happening was, oh my goodness, Suzanne, you're right. And I was like, oh, thanks, that's, that's awesome. I'm glad to know that I was right about something. Um, but at the same time, they were like, you know, they're just as busy as we are and they're getting questions about this. And wow, I didn't know this was global. And I, th I thought, yeah, we can look, we definitely look at the institutions in Victoria and in Melbourne, where we are. We definitely look at the Australian institutions. 
New Zealand, but let's look globally and let's share not only let's learn from them, but now where we are, let's let them learn from us. So one of the things that we're doing, um, which I, I'm really interested to kind of gauge and see what's happening globally is the use of predictive analytics to drive our interventions. So we have a full um, analytics team sitting behind us now, and they are able to provide us um, data every two to three weeks on who our high risk students are. And we use that to drive our interventions. So I said to the staff, you know, um, they came to me and they said, we've done all we can. There was a particular situation. We've done all we can. We can't do anything more for this group of students. And I said, I said, are you sure? Do we, you know, I challenged them. I said, are we really sure? Have you talked to your mentors? Have you gotten other ideas? Have you, have you gotten onto the Nikata website? Have you read through the articles? Let's, let's think about this. And a few weeks later, one of them came back to me and said, I have to eat my words now because you pushed us on that and we did something about it. And I cannot believe the response from students. And it all came down to students want to feel wanted. So we can't make assumptions about students and think, no, they don't want us to be proactively bothering them. Um, they sometimes don't know that they need it. We're going to be one step ahead of the ball game and use those analytics to drive those interventions and it's, you know, I think that now they're sharing that with their mentors. So that that's word is starting to come out. Um, and, you know, I look at these guys now and I think, you know, you shouldn't be talking to me. You should be talking to them because they are the face of advising now in Australia. And it's it's really exciting to see it playing out. And and the students are benefiting. The, and the retention numbers are doing quite well. Um, you know, it's it hurts globally anyways. We face the same situations that other institutions are facing. But the cohorts that we're working with, uh, the retention is, is looking quite good. But beyond that, the student feedback, you know, that we're getting, um, both quantitative and qualitative, is I just thank you. You know, it's nice to not have to retell my story 18 times to different people. I have someone looking after me. Um, I have someone reaching out to me before I even knew that I needed it. I think the fact that it it's grounded in the theory, but the you can hear the passion that goes into the practice of it. And anyone would respond to that, whether they're students or just anyone will, I think, respond to to the people wanting what's best for them and, and, you know, trying to meet their needs, as you said, sometimes, you know, pro more proactively than maybe they're even aware of. Now, Suzanne, one of the things I suppose I know Latrobe for is its work with international students. I know um, that um, Professor mm -hmm. Betty Leask is somebody whose work I really admire and around internationalization of the curriculum. But I'm wondering, in in your role, do you have any interaction with um, international students? Is that something that, that you've looked at? Yes, actually, I do. Um, so that was one thing when I got to Australia that, um, and, and Matt, this might be a little bit different for you, but I was used to there being real, one, a, a, no real difference in the services that were provided to domestic and international students. But when I got to La Trobe, there was kind of two pockets. So international students uh, had their own orientation. Domestic students had their own orientation. They did intertwine, um, but it was just it, it, two different teams. And what I have experienced is that over the past few years, that has started to come together more so. Now, yes, we have definitely been impacted uh, by the 
the current situation. It, I actually just saw um, on an article last night on our news that, I mean, education is our fourth biggest uh, export. So we have a large percentage of our students are international. Um, and I am working with them. So the, the predictive analytics that we have when students come into the institution is really mostly for domestic students because of uh, the information that we can get from the Australian government, from the schools, where they're living, those sorts of things. However, we're currently working on an international model as well. So that's one thing that we're, we're looking at and we're going to be piloting soon so that we can be more proactive in international uh what we would call churn um, to, to prevent them from leaving. Um, so we we're, we're actually uh, I'm, I'm working on a proposal with some team members right now. But one thing that I would say about our international. So I hinted at earlier the COVID outreach campaign that we did. That campaign was very simple. It was just a you know I had I think there were 220 volunteers that we trained at just a well-being call. No you know ulterior motives. It was Latrobe, let's check in with you. Let's see how you're going. We have so many resources. How can we help you? And at the end of every day, the academic advisors, on top of everything else that they do, um, the, you know, they were trying to advise their students and run sessions and do their Zoom appointments. We, at the end of every day at four o'clock, we blocked out and we went into our old school spreadsheets where all these callers were calling from and we triaged. Uh, and we triaged because we didn't expect the callers to know, to be able to advise students. We just wanted them to check in. And so we wanted to go through and triage and determine what could we do, you know, to kind of pick up the case and, and help it, help that student move along. And there were a, a wide variety of issues, of course, issues that we had to triage and send our counseling team. But a lot of them we were triaging with our international team. And the way we built our advising program when we launched it last year, I started something called a caseload management team. So around each advisor, I have um, different staff members that they connect with. I basically was making them sit together around a room and talk about their students. Again, because the systems weren't there. So I wanted to make sure that we were going to once a month sit down and let's talk about it. And because of that, we had a case management team in place with international and we had a student in particular through that campaign who was not doing well at all and was concerned that their roommate actually had COVID and was not telling anyone or getting tested. And it was that connection, that immediate, I could go back to that case management team. They called the student that afternoon. That follow on, that partnership was established and it's been really, really strong. So I think that that works. So one, the case management stuff that we did, which included international, we had an international team member in the case management meetings, the COVID specific campaign where we were liaising back and forth with our LTI, the Trobe International team, and they were then triage or picking up the cases and following up for the more specialized advice. And now where we are with this new model that hopefully we'll be launching soon to actually be able to proactively get out in front of students and help them more before they realize. So we don't have, well, currently we don't have early assessments. So all of that model will fall off of, are they logging into our LMS page? Are they checking their email? Uh, where, what, uh, age, you know, what agencies have they come from? What universities have they come from around the world? Um, and that model will then feed into 
our interventions. And I always say, you know, the old quote that without data, you're just another person with an opinion. So the, the better the data, the better the advisors are, the better they can get out in front of those issues and help the students. So I expect that what we've done in the domestic space uh, will will slide into the internationals. Now, we have international students in the cohorts anyway, so there are already students benefiting from it. Um, but the models themselves um, are impacted by gaps in the data. So this new model hopefully will help us get that. So it's, I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, yeah, I'm excited hearing about it and looking forward to seeing, seeing all the good stuff that comes out of it. And as we uh, get towards the end of the interview, um, you had mentioned the Nakata annual conference or now virtual conference. Uh, you mentioned uh, with Gavin and uh, the mentoring, but you're also presenting at the virtual conference, right? I am presenting. Um, I've got one little part of the mentoring presentation, which is actually the Latrobe case study on what we did with our mentors. So we started with, uh, we had five advisors in the very first mentoring program, five international mentors, and phase two, we'll see, you know, 12, hopefully 12 advisors, 12 mentors. Um, and we are, I'm also, so I'm presenting at Nakata um, with a team talking about why mentoring, why you should become a mentor, the difference between formal mentoring and informal mentoring and the benefits of both. Um, and uh, in partnership with Gavin and several other advisors. Um, and I'm also working with Gavin now to build an internal advising mentoring program at Latrobe. So, um, you know, again, reaching out to the Nakata community, trying to find mentoring programs that work and what we can use within the Australian context to continue to help our advisors um, and, and also those staff who are coming up behind us. So we're always looking at where are the new ones? Where are the next the next generation of people? You know, who's going to take my place when I when I move on? Those sorts of things. So it's it's again serendipity. I think is the theme. Everything's come together. Uh, I've had the right people put into my life at the right times, and um, I think that it's just uh, unbelievable to me. You know, and I, I think even when I tell the advisors that you know reach out to Nakata. It's just unbelievable the amount of people that are involved and the amount of ideas, the things that have been tried, um, the things that have been tried and maybe didn't work and how, you know, what could we do to make it work in the Australian context? And because I have a group of Australian advisors, it's fantastic because they'll turn around and say, okay, Suzanne, that's what it means here. This is what we could do here. How could we tweak that? And it's all because of this community. Um, and, you know, I think the fact that, yes, there's the conference, the virtual, you know, it is virtual, which I'm actually very, I'm benefiting from the fact that it's virtual. Um, I don't know that I could have traveled to Puerto Rico um, as much as I, when I would have squeezed in a little trip home to Texas as well, had some good Tex-Mex along the way, maybe catch a Texas A&M football game. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm benefiting from it and my team will benefit from it as well um, because I'll be able to take everything that I learn and of course, build that further into our induction programs and into our ongoing professional development. So I, I think it's it's very exciting, and I I genuinely can't thank Nakata enough. I mean, and you guys are part of that. So I put the podcast out in front of them all the time, saying, "Listen," and they come back and say, "Oh my goodness, somebody else feels the same way that I do." And I'm like, "It's nice, isn't it? It's a, we're, we're we're all a little bit crazy, but at least we're all crazy together." Suzanne, this has been delightful and insightful. 
the episode is going to come out the first day of the conference. I think anyone who listens to the episode is going to want to listen to your presentation. Equally, I think anyone who attends your presentation is going to want to hear more on the podcast episode. I think you've been really brilliant in the way you have outlined the work that's been undertaken at Latrobe. I think you ha- will have helped listeners to see that this work can be undertaken at their own institution, the importance of collaboration, the importance of research. And I mean, we didn't even get into the fact that you were at Texas A&M and Von Miller is an alum of Texas A&M. There's so many things we could have discussed. We're, we're going to have to get you back on the the podcast at some point want to wish you the best for the annual conference and just say thanks again for taking the time to chat to me and matt thank you so much i really appreciate it oh suzanne what a pleasure it was getting the opportunity to speak with you love everything that you and your growing team are doing at latrobe and definitely shows how advising is global and even though being multiple time zones apart People can still connect and really network. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're attending the virtual Nakata conference, we hope you have a fun time and have some great takeaways from the sessions. And if you're not registered, you can check out the virtual award ceremony for free. And so if you're listening to this podcast Monday, October 5th, it is today in a little bit. Um, It's at 4 p.m. Central Time. So check that out if you can. And as always, if you don't already, follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Advising Podcast. Also like, share, and subscribe to our podcast and most, if not all, podcasty platforms. Keep advising and catch us on the next episode. Bye now. Don't want a complication, 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 complication.